Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we ask if Elizabeth Warren, rather than Hillary Clinton, could become America's first female president. And we hear from Poland about how that country views the unrest in neighboring Ukraine. But we begin in the Middle East, where a deadline for peace talks between Israelis and Palestinians passed this week with no agreement. A few days before the deadline expired, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he was halting contacts with the Palestinians in protest against a unity pact between the main Palestinian factions, Fatah and Hamas. Meanwhile, US Secretary of State John Kerry, who sponsored the peace talks, apologized for telling a closed-door meeting in Washington that Israel could become an apartheid state if a two-state solution between Israelis and Palestinians becomes impossible. So what hope remains for a peace deal? And what does the Palestinian Unity Pact really mean? To find out, I'm joined from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Mark, why have Fatah and Hamas agreed this Unity Pact now? Um, I think most analysts would say that uh, it's actually the current weakness of Hamas that has forced the organization um, to agree to uh, this unity pact with its uh, bitter and long-term rival, Fatah. Um, Hamas has been banished from its base uh, in Syria. It lost the support of the Syrian regime after backing uh, the rebels in the civil war in Syria. Uh, as a consequence of that, not only did it lose its, uh, its geographical base in its headquarters in Syria, but Iran cut back drastically its aid to Hamas. Iran, of course, is aligned with the regime of Bashar al-Assad in, in uh, Syria. And also Egypt, that um, was up till uh, recently Hamas's most important strategic ally, has now declared Hamas a terrorist organization. So Hamas is very much on the ropes and needs uh, this alliance at the moment with Fatah um, to boost its support which is uh, decreasing in Gaza and the West Bank. So what does this pact actually mean in practical terms? Are they going to form a unity government? It means two things. First of all, within the next five weeks, uh, when the deal was signed last week, the two sides agreed to set up uh, a unity government um, comprised of technocrats that will be from neither Hamas or Fatah, uh, this will be the new Palestinian government, if indeed it happens. And this will pave the way for the second element uh, of the agreement, which is uh, elections for both a new president and a new Palestinian parliament in the West Bank and Gaza. But we must, we must remember one important thing. There has been at least five uh, unity agreements between the two organizations over the last seven years. None of them have been implemented. Uh, and why does Israel oppose this pact? Israel perceives Hamas as a terrorist organization committed to the destruction of Israel. Um, Israel uh, has posed a number of con- three basic conditions, which has been, have been approved by the quartet of international mediators as well, for Hamas to change uh, in order to be accepted as a legitimate negotiating partner. Um, these three conditions are that Hamas must recognize Israel, must renounce violence, and must agree um, to accept previous agreements signed between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. To date, Hamas has not done that, and therefore, uh, as far as Israel is concerned, uh, remains beyond the pale. 
an Israeli position is that the government will not accept any Palestinian government uh, that relies on Hamas for its support, either directly or indirectly. Paddy Smith, do you think that Israel's uh, fears about dealing with a Palestinian government that includes Hamas, that they're justified? I think uh, the, there's a... There's an element of uh, Israel using this uh, deal as an excuse for for cancelling the talks and for for saying that the talks are over. But there is also an underlying reality, which of which the Israelis are as aware as any, any anyone else, that any deal that that uh, the that uh, the PLO uh, does that 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 uh, Abbas does with them will have to be run past uh, Hamas and will have to be acceptable to to Hamas in the end. Uh, so, in in that sense, the the, the PLO is negotiating uh, as a proxy for for Hamas already, and and so a lot of this is is posturing on the part of the, of the Israelis. Is is that true, uh, Mark? That uh, that in fact, if uh, that any of the negotiations are going to be led by the PLO in any case, and that the, that Hamas has long accepted that uh, that the Palestinian side of the negotiations would be led by the PLO rather than by themselves. Well, uh, Hamas's official position remains that the PLO uh, and President Abbas is not negotiating on their behalf, that uh, the negotiations with Israel are illegitimate, as indeed the Jewish state, as they perceive it, is illegitimate per se. And therefore, uh, Abbas is negotiating uh, for his West Bank government, and certainly not on behalf. He does not represent the people of Gaza or Hamas in any, in any way. But we have an interesting um, element here. Um, because Israel, one of the criticisms Israel has made uh, um, against uh, President Abbas is that he does not represent all the Palestinian people. Uh, and now, uh, finally, uh, uh, we see at least, at least the beginnings of, of a reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas, uh, and now Israel is complaining that this also is not legitimate, uh, that Israel will not recognize uh, a unified Palestinian government. So it, it is difficult from that point of view, from Israel's perspective, they cannot criticize Abbas on the one hand for not representing all the Palestinian people and then criticizing when he does make efforts uh, to unite the Palestinian people behind him. Uh, President Abbas also made headlines the other day when he described the Holocaust as the most heinous crime in human history. What kind of welcome did that receive in Israeli government circles? Um, first of all, I think uh, most Israeli officials were surprised. Um, there is a very prevalent um, attitude uh, amongst many in the Arab world and, and indeed the wider Muslim world uh, of Holocaust denial, uh, of, of saying that Israel uses uh, the Holocaust for its, its own political benefits. So this was a, a, a surprise statement from Abbas, quite clearly uh, an attempt to win over um, moderate public opinion in this country. The, the, the statement was rejected by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who again um, mentioned the alliance with Hamas. He said Hamas is an organization that denies the Holocaust and is trying to um, carry out another Holocaust uh, by terrorism against, by wanting to destroy Israel. However, the Yad Vashem Holocaust uh, Memorial in Jerusalem uh, issued uh, a statement, uh, a cautious uh, welcoming of the statement, hoping this would pave the way uh, for similar sentiments in the Arab world. Uh, Paddy Smith, John Kerry has apologised for warning that Israel could become an apartheid state without a two-state solution, but he's not the first person to issue that warning. What do you think he might have meant? Well, I think what he meant was that, that uh, the uh, Israelis 
the Israeli state is not uh, a state which treats uh, citizens uh, equally. Um, that there are, there are different provisions and different laws for, for the Jewish community, for the for the Arab community, and that this is this has similarities to the apartheid regime in South Africa. Now, this claim has been made in the past by, among others, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, but it it is it always provokes the most. Um, uh, toxic reaction from the uh, Israeli spokesman who, who vehemently deny it and Kerry clearly has uh, stepped over the mark by making this its initially private uh, statement which he's now uh, hurried to deny it would certainly put him uh, at, at odds with the uh, um, powerful Israeli uh, lobby in, in America, which uh, and so but, he's retracted it. But might he not actually have been talking about a future situation as opposed to the, the current situation in Israel? So that, in other words, that if uh, the alternative to a two-state solution were to be a one-state solution involving both Palestinians and Israelis, that it would be impossible for Israel to be both a democratic and a Jewish state in that context. I think that's right. I think I think there was probably an implication of that. It would be a continuation, if you like, in a, in a different form of the of the present uh, uh, legal uh, situation uh, in, in Israel, and one that is that is uh, arguably similar to uh, you know to separate development. Uh, like South Africa. Mark, this kind of uh, fear has been voiced before, including by people who would regard themselves as being friendly towards Israel. But meanwhile, the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel has been gaining ground in recent years, especially in universities. Is Israel worried at all about uh, its place in the contest for public approval internationally? It certainly is. Um, uh, and the boycott movement is already... Uh, impacting um, on Israel in a number of uh, spheres, certainly on the academic level uh, and certainly on the cultural level. We've had uh, a number of academic boycotts of Israeli institutions of higher learning, even though, ironically, many of them tend to be bastions of the left uh, and the leaders of the pro-Palestinian, the pro-peace camp in this country. Uh, we've also had uh, cultural boycotts, a number of high-profile uh, musicians and groups of decided uh, to cancel con concerts in Israel or, or not to uh, Israel on their schedule uh, because of the boycott movement. Um, financially, economically, it's not having such an impact at the moment. Uh, but the fear is that uh, if the peace process indeed collapses, um, political uh, deadlock results, then um, these, these kind of uh, campaigns will only gain in strength and Israel will only become more and more isolated. Uh, is, is that a real danger, Paddy, that Israel is heading towards further international isolation? I think, I think so. Um, Europe has been very quiet over the last few months in, in watching this peace process uh, um, basically drift into the sand. But I think uh, that underlying uh, attitudes in Europe are hardening and that there are elements of boycott. Uh, which, which are definitely being supported by even quite surprising people like the Germans. Uh, finally, Mark, now that this round of talks is over, can we expect any further initiatives in the short term? The, the answer is we don't really know. We're on, on some kind of holding period at the moment. Um, first of all, to see what happens with the Fatah-Hamas uh, unity agreement. Will it, in fact, this time... Uh, hold and be actually be implemented, or will it collapse like all the other previous agreements? Uh, uh, much will result on, on the outcome of that. If the agreement collapses, then we can probably um, 
expect more attempts uh, led by the U.S. to revive the peace process, uh, certainly to get the sides around the negotiating uh, table again, if the Fatah-Hamas unity deal uh, indeed holds and goes ahead then uh, the Middle East peace process, uh, certainly, as we've seen it over the last nine months, is effectively uh, dead in the water, I think. And no one knows what the next step will be. There's talk that the American, if in, under such a scenario, uh, John Kerry may well put forward U.S. bridging proposals uh, to the side uh, and say, take it or leave it, this is what um, the um, administration supports. Um, there is always the danger in this region that diplomatic uh, deadlock leads eventually to a renewed cycle of violence. Uh, and this, uh, of course, no one wants to see. And both sides will be very eager uh, to play the blame game and uh, try to convince the international community that they were not the party responsible for the breakdown of the peace process. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem and Paddy Smith here in Dublin, thank you. In Washington, all eyes are on Hillary Clinton as she decides if she'll run for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016. Until recently, she appeared to have no serious opposition. But in the past few weeks, speculation surrounding another woman, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, has reached fever pitch. So what's it all about? To find out, I'm joined from Washington by our correspondent Simon Carswell, and Paddy Smith is here in studio with me. Simon, why is everybody talking about Elizabeth Warren? Well, she'd be a favorite amongst many of the liberal Democrats. Her um, economic populism would have, has made her a hero to the left. Um, she's adopted this anti-corporate stance, and she has buckets of energy, which has uh, reinvigorated the party grassroots. And speculation has reached fever pitch in the last while because her new book, A Fighting Chance, has stoked speculation that she may consider a run in 2016. Now, she has repeatedly ruled herself out of running for the race. She said in one interview uh, recently on ABC News, when asked, she said, I'm not running for president, and she said it three times just to make sure the interviewer knew where she, her, what her position was. And she has come out and she said she hopes that Hillary Clinton would run, um, and she has said that well, she's actually one of several senators to sign a letter urging Clinton to run in 2016. But that hasn't stopped uh, the speculation that she would, she could uh, run uh, for the presidency. And the view is she would give Hillary Clinton a run for her money. And the perception is that she could be the Barack Obama of 2016. Uh, what's made her popular um, is that she's this class warrior. She's come out fighting for the rights of consumers and low and middle income families. And that's particularly, particularly relevant in America at the moment at a time when the uh, gap between the richest 1% of Americans and everyone else is getting wider and is, is at its widest that it's ever been. And she really has come across as a champion of consumers. She's a former professor of bankruptcy law at Harvard, and she set up the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And she's really tapping that anti-Wall uh, Street, anti-bank feeling that still exists in America. Um, some of her very high-profile congressional performances have been um, really knocking down regulators, questioning why they haven't taken further action against Wall Street. And in one particularly high-profile committee hearing, she attacked uh, regulators and said, well, she's concerned that too big to fail has become too big for trial, and she lambasted a regulator for not taking more action against Wall Street. So really, she seems to be taking on uh, the role that Barack Obama adopted. She's very popular, and she um, has attracted this grassroots support from the Democrats. Now, many political strategists like their candidates to have a compelling personal story. How does Elizabeth Warren measure up on that count? 
Well, in many ways, she she kind of epitomizes the the, the inequalities that she rails against. She comes from from a background uh, where she has struggled herself, and her family has struggled. Her father suffered a heart attack when she was 12 years old, and that left the family struggling to pay substantial medical bills and loans. Um, that forced her mother to find work in an apartment store, and she worked in her aunt's Mexican restaurant. So people appreciate that she really practices what she preaches. She believes that uh, she believes in much of what she says, and people have respect for her because she has the experience of, of many uh, low-income and hard-work, uh, hard-working families as they struggle to make ends meet. Uh, Patty Smith, uh, there's usually seems to be uh, in, in the Democratic primaries at least a place for one of these populist candidates. Do you think that uh, she fits the bill? I, I think there's a lot of Democratic activists who, who would very much like to, to see her reign. But the, the big difference between herself and Barack Obama is that she is running from the left. She is very distinctly of the left uh, side of the party, whereas Obama, um, for his he, all his populism, was to the right of Hillary Clinton, and and, uh, this was understood. And certainly in terms of winning uh, away some of the Republicans from from, uh, the leading Republican candidates, uh, she would have a more difficult time. But that's not to say that they they don't want to see her. It's very interesting that she has emerged at a time when two other figures have become great co-celebre in in America. Um, Bill de Blasio, who won the uh, New York uh, uh, primary election, uh, sorry, mayoral election, is uh, is seen in in a very similar light. And um, the writer Thomas Piketty, uh, who's just published an extraordinarily successful economic textbook on equality, all of these have given a new hope to the left, and uh, uh, I think that you will see more calls for somebody of her ilk uh, to run. Meanwhile, uh, Simon, do we uh, have any idea if Hillary Clinton is running? Uh, how are the, the signs currently being read? Well, she's still saying that she um, she hasn't come out and said that she's running for it, although the strength of her uh, intentions are, are, are everyone following uh, every word that she says on this. And the most recent thing that she has said is that she's seriously thinking about it, which is a, a shift from what she previously said, where she's really kind of dodged the questions that she hadn't, she hadn't yet decided. So um, many people are presuming it's going to happen. It's just a question of when she's going to announce. She has her memoir coming out in June, which m- people will obviously speculate that that might be the time for her to announce her, her candidacy, although um, the sense is that she wouldn't like to be in the race for too long, so it may be sometime yet before she announces. I think that she would be seen as the leading candidate. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think, while interesting and interesting to the left, um, really would, would struggle to beat Hillary in a race. But what she may do is she could pull Hillary and some of the more mainstream Democrats to the left with this liberal campaign manifesto that she might have. And that would open up a very interesting race because it could leave a more moderate Republican to take up more of the middle ground um, with Hillary having been dragged to the left with a potential candidacy approach by um, by Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren is one of the few Democrats, apart from Hillary Clinton, who actually can raise very, very large amounts of money, as she has been doing on behalf of, of other candidates. But if Hillary Clinton does run, she it looks as if she's going to be running as the inevitable candidate, rather as she did in 2008. And that didn't work out all that well. Is there any anxiety in the pro-Clinton camp about this sense of inevitability surrounding her? 
Well, I think there is, and I think that they're they're careful not to come out so soon uh, and to, for her to be in the race, as I said, for so long, because they're concerned about potential challengers from the likes of Elizabeth Warren. And you're right to point out Elizabeth Warren's fundraising capacity. I mean, for her own Senate campaign in 2012, um, when she became the first female senator from Massachusetts, she raised $42 million, which is way out of proportion for most Senate races. And when you consider that half of that came in online donations, it shows something similar to the, the fundraising capacity that uh, Barack Obama enjoyed in, in both his presidential campaigns. And it shows Elizabeth Warren can mobilize fairly widespread support. And also, she hasn't stopped there. She's also managed to raise more than $2 million uh, for other candidates uh, running, running for Congress. So she has this remarkable fundraising capacity, uh, and, and primarily because she can uh, tap that populist vote uh, because of being this status that she has as, as a hero of the left. So I think that Elizabeth Warren would be of concern to the Clinton camp, not so much that she could beat Clinton, but that she might force a change in the policy position that Hillary Clinton has to take in her campaign. People have likened it to um, what John Edwards did in the 2008 campaign, where he maybe not have been a, um, a realistic candidate, but he uh, raised the prospect of, or changed the policy, uh, the, the political debate in the campaign with his talk of two Americas. So the feeling is that if Elizabeth Warren does run, even though she's denying that she will, she could uh, really change the entire conversation amongst Democrats in the, in the campaign. What other names do we hear mentioned in the context of the Democratic primary? Well, the, the obvious name that's been mentioned is Martin O'Malley, the Maryland governor. Again, he, he would have a fairly uh, progressive agenda um, in what he's done in Maryland. Um, and again, the, the, the debate is whether he would be a good running mate for Hillary. The view would be that he may not be um, a, a, a successful challenger against Clinton, but that he could be a very, uh, very good vice presidential candidate running mate to Hillary Clinton. Um, the big debate at the moment is on the Republican side as to who is, is going to run in that field, and it's, it's very difficult to say. Jeb Bush has come out, uh, former Florida governor has come out quite strongly in recent weeks, and again, his name has been mentioned, and certainly he'd, he'd be the one that would be favoured to take the Republican ticket and running against Hillary. Uh, Simon Carswell in Washington and Paddy Smith here in Dublin, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The crisis in Ukraine and Russia's actions in the east of that country has caused alarm throughout Europe, but nowhere more so than among Russia's western neighbours. Poland, which shares a border with both Ukraine and Russia, last week welcomed the deployment of US forces on its territory as a first step towards beefing up the defence of NATO's eastern frontier. But Warsaw has doubts about the willingness of its biggest neighbour in the west, Germany, to take tough action against Russia. I'm joined now from Berlin by our correspondent, Derek Scali. Derek, Poland is obviously alarmed by Russia's actions in recent months, but does it also feel vindicated? It, it, it does. It's, uh, it's very much the, the best of times and the worst of times for Poland, and particularly for, for Polish uh, politicians and Polish diplomacy. I mean, in the 10 years since they've joined the EU, they've struggled often to get a hearing uh, from their Western neighbours on various issues, but never more so than on how to deal with Russia. And Poland, like um, the Baltic countries and other former satellite states of the Soviet Union, have their uh, very traumatic experience of Russia and and because of this, they were often felt, and I think they felt that they were being treated as some sort of hysterical Eastern cousins when it came to the Russian issue. But uh, I was in 
Warsaw uh, in the last few days, and they are feeling vindicated. They've said many people have come to us and say, we're sorry to say, but you were actually right on Russia. Now, on the other hand, the Poles are saying, well, we were kind of right about Russia's um, viewing, uh, its, its view of its uh, Western neighbours, but the Poles say even they were, were caught off guard by the speed and the aggression of Russia's annexation of Crimea. And um, they say it's, um, it's more sort of a grim satisfaction than cheering that they were right and everyone else was wrong. So what does Warsaw want NATO and the European Union to do next? Well, really what they're saying is, we've the polls are saying, we've been asking for a lot of things over the last 10 years, and it's time to really join the dots uh, on Donald Tusk, the Polish Prime Minister, uh, last week had a piece in the Financial Times saying it's time to come up with an energy union. We've got a banking union, but on energy questions, we're as, we're as uh, vulnerable as before. So on this, he was talking about uh, European Union members should throw in their lot together when it comes to negotiating energy contracts with Russia so that there can't be any uh, battles over price or conditions and that uh, Russia can't divide and conquer. He also wanted a greater infrastructure so that if there's shortages in one part of the EU because, let's say, Russia's cut off gas supplies, that other places in the EU can supply gas. On NATO, he's very much anxious for uh, people to get serious on NATO. Poland uh, joined the bloc in '95, and it's always been rather concerned that other countries, even uh, founder members like Germany and others, don't seem to take their membership as seriously. They don't seem to spend the money they're supposed to be spending. And um, Poland and the Baltic countries are, are very worried that their member, second-class members, that they're on the front line should anything happen. But they're worried that uh, the supposed solidarity of NATO that's supposed to be automatic might just uh, get bogged down in, in diplomacy if, for instance, Russia started to encroach on their borders. And what about Berlin? The Poles obviously don't think that uh, the Germans are quite as serious as they are about tough action against Russia. Are they right about that? Well, I think they're right to be concerned. They feel that uh, Angela Merkel definitely has um, Vladimir Putin's ear. And with that in mind, Donald Tusk, the Polish Prime Minister, has been assiduously cultivating his relationship with Merkel. So uh, the, the Polish-German relationship, is, as far as Angela Merkel is concerned, is quite strong. But it's uh, Merkel's coalition partners, the Social Democrats, which cause some concern in, um, in Warsaw. From a Polish perspective, the Social Democrats have been a little bit too um, blue-eyed in their view of Russia that somehow through trade you could democratize Russia. The Poles say, I don't think Russia was interested in being democratized, but they're quite happy for the trade efforts from Germany and the Social Democrats. So uh, the German, the Poles are slightly worried about the Social Democrats who control the foreign ministry, and they don't quite trust them. But uh, as far as Angela Merkel is concerned, they consider her uh, a serious partner, and um, they're quite happy to have her. And finally, one uh, very prominent Social Democrat, the former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder, has been in a spot of bother at home because of celebrating his birthday in Moscow. Indeed, he just turned 70, and uh, Mr. Schroeder uh, views uh, Vladimir Putin as a great friend from their time in office together. And he, as soon as he left office, he joined the board of an, of an energy consortium building a gas pipeline from Russia directly to Germany, bypassing Poland and Ukraine. So he's been a great friend. He was in, uh, he was in St. Petersburg for a, a meeting about the consortium, and they uh, had a, a party for him. And uh, the special guest was Vladimir Putin. This has caused great upset in Germany because... Just Looks, it just looks disastrous, and for many polls, it will just confirm their concerns about uh, Mr. Schroeder and his Social Democrats and their view of Russia. Derek Scally in Berlin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton. Goodbye. <laughs>